This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, corruption and its corrosive effects in Brazil. And we'll also reflect on NAFTA and the North American idea. But first fallout from the summit of the Americas. The controversy is not about the drug war, or about Cuba, or really about any diplomatic policy issue. No, instead, it's mostly about sex. What happens when the U.S. Secret Service mixes it up with prostitutes in Colombia? Vanessa Jesus Gonzati has the latest on that scandal and all the news from around Latin America. The summit of the Americas that took place this past weekend was full of controversy. Divisions over Cuba kept leaders from issuing a joint summit declaration. Some countries say they want Cuba to attend the next regional meeting, but the U.S. opposes because the island does not meet democratic standards. Argentine President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner left the summit before the official closing to protest lack of regional support on the Falkland Islands dispute with the U.K. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos says the lack of agreement is normal, but that it is very important to open up issues to debate. The fact that there was no declaration is not a failure. On the contrary, the fact that the issue was discussed is a success. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez did not attend because he was in Cuba continuing his radiotherapy treatment. So far, three employees of the Secret Service involved in the prostitution scandal in Colombia have already lost their jobs. White House Press Secretary Jay Carney says President Barack Obama has full confidence in the Secret Service director. Two things. One, the president has confidence in the director of the Secret Service. Uh, Director Sullivan acted uh, quickly uh, in response to this incident and is overseeing an investigation as we speak. Kearney also said President Obama's security was never at risk, but he did not want to give more details about the investigation because it's an ongoing matter. At least 11 members of the Secret Service are involved in the scandal. They're being accused of bringing prostitutes to the hotel rooms in Cartagena prior to Obama's arrival at the Summit of the Americas. Several members of Congress believe that firings will continue during an investigation that started Monday. Reactions are spreading regarding another scandal. This one concerns the administration of President Mauricio Funes in El Salvador. The Funes administration is accused of negotiating with the country's powerful street gangs, known as Maras. Some of these gangs have affiliates throughout Central America and the U.S. The question is whether the government cut a deal with the gangs to better conditions for imprisoned gang members in exchange for a ceasefire on gang murders. Tom Bruno, the co-editor of the new book, Maras, Gang Violence and Security in Central America, says too many questions lingered to condemn the Salvadoran government. It's kind of alleged negotiations. You know, that is, there are, you know, there are some facts that you could identify, but no one has stepped up uh, in, in any official capacity that I know of and said, yes, we're negotiating and these are the deal. This is the terms of the deal. The government admits it did transfer gang leaders to lower security prisons, but merely so they could easily communicate terms of a ceasefire negotiated by the Catholic Church. The top leader of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, says he is willing to start peace talks with President Juan Manuel Santos. 
The leader, known as Timoshenko, says that to sit down and talk does not mean surrendering. This is the first time the FARC says it is willing to negotiate peace, seeking to end the internal armed conflict in Colombia that has gone on for close to 50 years. President Cristina Fernández of Argentina announced her intention of nationalizing YPF, Repsol's Argentine Oil Operations, by expropriating Repsol's majority stake of the company. Everyone should know that the 51% will not be managed by any local nor national group. It must be managed by the Argentinian state. The decision provoked diplomatic protests from Spain and other affected parties, such as Mexico. Mexican customs inspectors seized almost 300,000 rounds of assault rifle ammunition in a U.S. truck crossing the border. A man from Dallas, Texas, was detained near Ciudad Juarez for carrying the ammunition in his truck through the border. The man, who is being investigated on illegal weapons charges, claimed he had nothing to declare before crossing. Prosecutors say it is the largest seizure of ammunition in Ciudad Juarez in recent memory. The man's company said he took a wrong turn in El Paso and ended up in Mexico, that he was really on his way to Arizona. Mexican authorities raised the alert level to five out of seven in the possibility that the Popocatépetl volcano, called Popo, might erupt. The volcano is located only a couple of dozen miles from Mexico City, one of the most populated cities in the world. For the past few months, Popo has been sending out chunks of rock, hot white ash, and gray vapors. The National Disaster Prevention Center in Mexico City reported Tuesday that the volcano's lava dome was growing at fast speed. Last time Popo erupted was in 2000, and more than 50,000 people were evacuated. I'm Vanessa Jesus Gonzari, reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. This week, Matt Taylor, a professor at American University, who specializes in the political economy of Brazil, returns to the program. In this pre-recorded discussion, we analyze corruption's effect on Brazil's growth. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, obviously, corruption is a major concern for Brazil. Um, there's been There have been major political scandals under every president uh, since the return to democracy in the 1980s. Uh, without exception, all presidents have faced major cor- political corruption scandals. Um, and then there's, of course, corruption at the state and local levels, which may be even worse. And so if, if we look at estimates of the cost of corruption to Brazil, people say, uh, with some pretty good evidence to back them, uh, something between 3 and 5% of GDP is going out the window to corruption. So it is a major concern. 5% of gross domestic product. And I think on a previous program, you told us there was something like 500,000 public officials in in Brazil? It seems like a huge number, Um, but um, uh, that seems like a lot of pockets to feed. Well, uh, let me just uh, clarify. There there are 500,000 at the state and local level, 500,000 political appointees. There are probably another 3 million civil servants at at, at all levels of government. So, uh, yes, the civil service is quite large. The public sector is quite large. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of uh, factors that contribute to, to corruption here. One is the political system itself, and we can talk about that if you're interested. But Please do. Um, the, the major concern here is that Brazil is a very, um, fra- has a very fragmented uh, multi-party system with, you know, 
for example, at the federal level, there are more than 20 parties in Congress at any given time. Um, and so a lot of deal cutting. A lot of deal cutting. And uh, the president, for example, President Dilma Rousseff right now has, her party has about 20% of Congress, no more than that. Um, and so she's had to. And that would be the Labor Party. Yes. That would be the Workers' Party, right, yeah. the PT. And so the, the PT has had to work to form a coalition with a group of very um, ideologically diverse parties. And one way they do this, and this is replicated at the state municipal level as well, is to distribute ministries to um, each member of the coalition. And so Dilma was able to put together a coalition that now includes more than three-quarters of the members of Congress, which is very nice for governability, but it means also that her ministry is filled with uh, lots of people from different parties, sometimes uh, there for less than pure reasons. And has this government, the new government, also had its own corruption scandal? It it has had um, a number of ministers fired for corruption scandals, and uh, you know I think the the response of the Dilma administration would be to cautiously point to the fact that many of those ministers were carryovers from her predecessor's government. Uh, her difficulty, which in was also a PT well, workers' exactly, party government, exactly, and so her difficulty in making that argument is she was put in office by the her, the previous administration. I mean the uh, the the administration of President uh, Luis Ignacio Lula Silva was able to um, elect Dilma, and so she's a carryover, and it would be uh, rude and and unwise for her to put the blame on her predecessor. But she really did inherit. Uh, a number of unsavory characters, and she, I don't know the number exactly, but she has fired in her first year in office, she fired about seven ministers, um, and I don't know where the number stands right now. It may be up to nine. So at least at the top, there seems to be some thought about changing where, where Brazil is on the transparency international corruption scale or, or the perception index. Well, more or less, and this is uh, where the critics, I think, have a good point. Um, one of the problems with uh, President Dilma's approach is it gets rid of the, 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 the symptom, but it doesn't do anything to address the underlying illness. And the underlying illness uh, has a lot to do with the lack of accountability in Brazil. The courts are inefficient and actually include a number of protections. The legal system includes a number of protections to sitting politicians that enables them to essentially uh, avoid any convictions. So there's uh, some immunities in, involved. In, in, yeah, th I wouldn't even say some. There, there's complete immunity almost. Uh, in the Just to give you one figure, in the 30 years of democracy, more or less the, the past generation of democracy, uh, there have been more than 400 politicians tried in Brazil's second highest court, and another 150 more or less tried in the highest court. And um, in the highest court, the first politician to be convicted uh, ever was convicted in 2010, in 2010. So after 30 years of democracy, uh, only one senior politician has been convicted uh, in the high court. I wonder if you could give us a historical uh, clarification um, you, you talked about um, major politician convicted. Uh, we have seen a president lose office in Brazilian history because of corruption, but no conviction attached that's, to that? That's correct. So um, President Collor, uh, as you mentioned, was impeached in um, 1992. 
His case went to the Supreme Court, the SCTF, the uh, Supreme Federal Tribunal, uh, but he was actually um, absolved on essentially technicalities. So lost office, but but didn't serve any time. That's correct. And 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 this was, I uh, many people say, a watershed in in Brazilian culture and how moving forward on this. So we do see Brazilian culture trying to shift away from corruption, do we not? A- absolutely, and that's that's I think uh, you're wise to to point this out. And I don't want to be a complete naysayer because if you look at Brazil's history over the past thirty years, there have been just enormous gains on the accountability front, and so they've created um, new new ministries such as the the uh, Comptroller General's Office, which is a fairly powerful agency for investigating corruption. Uh, they've strengthened uh, the federal police, which is also an important agency in fighting corruption. Uh, and there have been a number of new uh, legislative proposals that increase transparency, that increase the penalties for crime um, and for corruption. And so th- I don't want to say that there, hasn't, there haven't been gains. There have been enormous gains. They've been very incremental gains, but over time they add up to a very significant improvement. The, the problem, however, is that the judiciary continues to lag behind. And the court system is so highly independent in Brazil that no matter how much the executive might want to improve accountability, uh, unless there's commitment by judges and by the ministers of the Supreme Court, it will be very difficult for us to see improvements uh, in accountability processes. What do you think is at the core of this culture of corruption? We don't just see it in Brazil. We see it in many parts of Latin America. Why is this problem there and why this endemic fight against it? Well, I'm, I'm a real skeptic about uh, a culture of corruption. I don't think that there is a culture of corruption per se. I mean, um, there may be some evidence here and there, but the, the, the larger problem I really do think is institutional in Brazil uh, because we do see that these institutional changes, for example, are having an effect on corruption within the civil service because civil servants can be fired administratively uh, even if they're not put in jail. So some of this is also institution building inside the Brazilian structure. We talk about strong presidents in the past and in Brazil, certainly a strong military structure before the presidents. Um, but the courts, as you say, have lagged behind. What other institutions could help in this regard? The the um, the courts have lagged behind. The, there is a, a very interesting uh, prosecutorial body in Brazil which has, has helped enormously uh, called the Ministerio Público, and the Ministerio Público is um, largely independent. That is, it's often called a, a fourth branch of government. It's so independent. The, the Ministerio Público could help further, though, I think. Uh, it has had an enormous effect, but um, it's been a, a somewhat untargeted effect. That is, uh, each uh, prosecutor is largely independent of his colleagues, and so you have sort of dispersed uh, investigation. If there were more task forces uh, oriented toward um, addressing specific issues within the prosecutorial body, I think you might have uh, better improvements. Does this mean that the rule of law is strengthening in Brazil? I think over time it has, yes. Um, there are, of course, just enormous uh, violations of human rights by police, for example, um, these issues of corruption that we've been discussing. But um, we have seen improvements, and I think it may be uh, uh, at a somewhat glacial pace, but the, the, the trend is in a nice direction. And what about those human rights um, prosecutions? Do they just not go forward, or 
Uh, are the police off limits? Uh, yeah. Even the military has been somewhat off limits uh, until very recently. Well, there, there, again, here we've seen improvements as well. Uh, both police and military are now, su- now subject to um, uh, civilian courts in cases of homicide. Um, it's not in all cases of abuse, but it is an improvement nonetheless. There have been numerous extrajudicial killings in Brazil, and Brazil is known for this particular problem. You're absolutely right. And, um, you know, when you when you take uh, police killings out of the homicide rate, the homicide rate falls dr- drastically. So um, this is, is one major problem. Uh, I don't want to, you know, keep banging on the same key, but it strikes me that if you could improve the, the functioning, the efficiency of the courts, um, and, and um, you know, uh, make sure that these cases are, are tried quickly uh, and efficiently, the, uh, the results might be, might be different. So moving beyond street justice in Brazil, that's a particular solution here. Yeah, absolutely. Matt Taylor, thank you for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Matt Taylor, a political scientist, uh, political economist, too, at American University. Thank you. Thanks very much. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our next guest, Robert Pastor, is currently touring the country, touting his 17th book, The North American Idea. Pastor runs two centers at American University, where he also teaches international relations. He's a former national security advisor on Latin America and the Caribbean for the Carter administration. We talked to him about his new book, along with reflections on the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, and U.S. relations with Mexico. This is a book about North American integration, is it not? It's about more than integration. It's about the relationship between the United States and its two closest neighbors, Mexico and Canada, two most important markets for its goods, two most important sources of energy imports, and the two countries that matter most to America's security and society. Uh, That relationship has not modernized, uh, has not equalized, indeed because the United States is so much more powerful than its two neighbors, by and large it ignores its neighbors and doesn't realize just how important they are for the future of the United States. It's interesting to hear you talk about it not being modernized. Some of us would have thought that the North American Free Trade Agreement, what people call NAFTA, would have changed that relationship and would have modernized that. The North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which was negotiated in the early 1990s and came into effect in 1994, did transform U.S. relations with its two neighbors in rather significant ways. Uh, Up until that moment, from the time of independence uh, by all three countries in uh, North America, Uh, Canada and Mexico, for obvious reasons, wanted to keep their distance from this great colossus and this emerging power, which had actually invaded both Canada 
uh, in the War of 1812 and Mexico in the U.S.-Mexican War of 1846. So it's not a surprise that Canada and Mexico were eager to put up barriers to the United States and try to keep U.S. influence at a minimum. NAFTA represented a desire by those two countries uh, to move beyond that old distant relationship to more of an economic embrace among the three countries in order to enhance trade and development in all three. And it has succeeded. It succeeded remarkably. From 1994 to 2001, the three countries of North America expanded their trade by three times, their foreign direct investment in each other's countries by five times. North America as a regional unit uh, increased its share of world product from 30% of the world product in 1994 to 36% in 2001, becoming far and away the most formidable regional unit, much more than the European Union or East Asia. But unfortunately, we peaked in 2001, and we've declined back to where we started again. Uh, and that's for multiple reasons. But the main reason is that our three leaders have not shown the imagination or leadership necessary to advance this project um, and to transform it so that it would endure, uh, not just in terms of economic relations, but to compensate for the fact that the United States is so much more powerful than its two neighbors that we can simply be, we could simply ignore our two neighbors if we want to, uh, and we often do. Uh, but that does not serve our long-term interest, even though it seems to serve our short-term interest. And that's what the book is about. Many people in the United States don't know the common saying in Mexico, which is, poor Mexico, so close to the United States and so far from God. But even in the last election cycle, when President Obama was still a senator and running, NAFTA was brought up in the debates and didn't seem that President Obama was all that supportive of 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 this NAFTA idea of the of this North American idea, do you think he's changed as he's been in office, or has this even been a big thing on the agenda? NAFTA became a pinata for pandering pundits and politicians, including uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, uh, in the 2008 election, uh, using it for short-term interest to blame. Uh, Mexico and NAFTA for problems that have nothing to do with either NAFTA or Mexico, problems in which we share in the responsibility, whether it's drug trafficking and violence in Mexico or whether it's, uh, it's uh, immigration-related uh, issues as well. Uh, I think President Obama understood after the election when he became president that he was mistaken uh, in his comments both about NAFTA and about Mexico. I think during this uh, administration, they have moved to try to improve relationships, but, but they're very cautious. They're, they're not terribly productive. He has spent time, but not quality time, uh, in trying to redesign the relationship. Uh, and that's what, what is needed right now. It's clear uh, that, that these incremental steps uh, that he is doing, including uh, summit, uh, meetings that uh, w were held uh, on April uh, 3rd uh, between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, that these are inadequate uh, for addressing the totality of a relationship. Most, most Americans think our most important trading relationship in the world, the most important market for U.S. goods is China. 
but in fact, we export almost twice as much to Mexico as we do to China. Uh, three times more to Canada than to China. Uh, twice, uh, nine times more to Mexico than to Brazil. You brought up two very large themes there, immigration and the drug war. Some would argue that the Obama administration has not been engaged enough on those two issues. How do you deal with that in the book, and what are your recommendations on either one of those? An effective strategy for dealing with the drug war and to dealing with immigration, or for that matter, for dealing with infrastructural and transportation problems or environmental problems and labor problems, requires a new way of thinking of our neighbors. Uh, instead of blaming our neighbors for these problems, it requires a recognition not just in rhetoric but in policy of a shared responsibility. I distinguish between rhetoric and policy because this administration has recognized rhetorically that the drug trafficking and violence problem is a shared responsibility of the U.S. and Mexico and recently the Canadian defense minister reiterated that this is a shared responsibility of Canada too. But we haven't translated that into real policy. If we did, we would realize that 80 to 90 percent of all of the assault weapons and high violence uh, weapons that are used by the drug cartels in Mexico are purchased in the United States in gun shops within 50 to 75 miles of the border. Now, if, if that was happening in the reverse direction, if American violent gangs were purchasing assault rifles in Mexico. Do you think we would just simply ask the Mexican government to close those gun shops down? I don't think so. I think we would go over and close them if the Mexicans didn't. The Mexicans have asked the same of the United States. They've simply said, why don't you reapply uh, 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 re the assault weapons ban uh, that had been in force in the United States until 2004, and the United States has ignored it. And those assault weapons are being purchased by the drug cartels in Mexico and killing 50, 40 to 50,000 people uh, in the last six years in Mexico. So if we really had a shared responsibility, we would shut down those gun shops. Uh, we would introduce a series of very specific reforms to make sure those guns didn't get into the hands of the cartels. That's what I mean when I say that you have to change the idea first. You have to really inculcate in our consciousness that North America matters to us, that we need to take hard steps that are politically difficult because of the power of the gun lobby in the United States, but not impossible. Uh, if we succeed in understanding that we should treat our neighbors like we want to be treated, and we ask ourselves, how would we react uh, if these guns were coming from Mexico and the United States? Then I think we would find the political will to take the kinds of steps that would enhance and balance this relationship. I'm glad you talked about the gun equation because normally on this program we talk a lot about drugs going north and immigrants going north, but not about the guns going south. But on the immigrant question, any thoughts about that and how there can be more engagement on that, even though this sort of illegal immigration is at its 30-year low in the United States. It's still a, a huge political football this particular year, this election year. Well, we have to understand that we have been trying to create a North American market. And to the extent that we succeed, 
we need to make it seamless, and that would help us economically. But what happens is when you create a North American market for goods, labor mobility increases as well. And that's what's happened. So we need to look at labor mobility in the context of a North American market. We need to get preference to our two neighbors. We need to treat them a little bit differently because the migration from Mexico uh, involves a very substantial amount of undocumented migration, and that's because of the income gap between Mexico and its northern neighbors. We need to do something about the income gap if we're going to do it. So we need a comprehensive approach to labor mobility in North America that recognizes the income gap but attacks that at one of the, as one of the problems to be dealt with within the context of a new North American idea. Well, with that, Bob Pastor, the author of the new book, The North American Idea, out last year, 2011, coming out soon in paperback. Thank you for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.